All right, it's Kincaid and Breckenridge. I'm Rob Breckenridge, along with Roger Kincaid. If you missed the program today, uh, obviously we spent a lot of time talking about the tragic death of PC MLA Mamet Bueller. We actually heard from former Premier Jim Prentice, a close friend of Mr. Bueller, who shared some some thoughts uh, on the death of his friend. After that, we uh, had a conversation about a new law that's been, uh, well, not introduced, but maybe an old law that's been relaxed that will allow burlesque dancers a little bit more freedom when they are performing their shows. Thanks very much for listening to the podcast. You can catch us Monday to Friday uh, at 9.30 on News Talk 770. Uh, but we start this morning with uh, news that has uh, rattled many Albertans. Um, the province uh, in mourning today. Uh, shocking news last night that uh, Manmeet Bueller, 35-year-old uh, PCMLA, uh, former cabinet minister representing uh, the city of Calgary, had uh, died tragically uh, in, in, a, in a crash on, on the QE2 last night. He'd been driving back to Calgary from Edmonton. This is just north of Red Deer, as we understand, um, had had stopped to to assist another motorist whose vehicle had, had gone off the road and was um, was tragically struck by uh, an out of control semi, as we understand it. Yeah, and no, the first remark that we've heard from so many people who commented uh, uh, upon this news, um, this very sad news, was that it's not surprising at all to them that uh, that Man Meet Buehler pulled over to assist another motorist. That that's just the uh, absolutely the type of character that he was. Um, this is a, this is a significant loss for Alberta. Manmeet was a very selfless politician, and that's why the tributes uh, all sound the same about Manmeet. Uh, that he was uh, uh, the the right kind of person, the, the, the definitely the type of individual that uh, all Albertans should hope to have representing them. And he is a, a huge loss to uh, to his constituents, and indeed to the whole province of Alberta. A, a good friend of mine uh, said that on the on the first day. Uh, of the Legislative Assembly on the first day in 2012, when um, when he w- when he entered, this good friend of mine entered the House. Uh, Manmeet was there on the other side uh, in in the government benches. He was in the opposition benches, and Manmeet reached out, shook his hand, basically, and said, "It's good to see another young person in here. We've got to straighten this place out." <laughs> well, he was in Edmonton, uh, well, among other things, uh, giving a speech on on combating domestic violence. Right, and so it was part of the, uh, the the way, and he was trying to make a difference in Alberta, trying to make this this uh, a more caring and compassionate society. He was first elected to the Alberta legislature back in 2008. He was just 28 years old at the time, but um, even just before that, had uh, served as an advisor to then federal cabinet minister Jim Prentice. Uh, the two have been uh, been very close for some time, and. Uh, joining us on the line is the aforementioned uh, former Premier, former Cabinet Minister uh, Jim Prentice. Um, Mr. Prentice, thank you for making some time for us today, and, and certainly our condolences. I, I know you were quite close with uh, Mr. Buehler. Well, we're all um, uh, devastated, really, uh, by the loss of Mamit uh, yesterday, and um, I was. Uh, uh, our hearts go to his family. As we were with them last evening, and um, they were hundreds and hundreds of people that were, were mourning, and um, he'll be sorely missed uh, in our province. You know, I've never uh, met anyone in public life with a sort of a higher sense of, of calling than, than Mamit, uh, you know, an incredible sense of justice. I've never met anybody who had a higher desire to just simply to serve people. So he'll, he is a real loss to all of us in this province and in the country, in fact. 
Jim, can you can you tell us about his entry into politics? I mean, when did you first uh, meet Manmeet, and and you know what struck you at that moment that that he was going to be a great politician? Well, he he, he, he of course was a great politician, and um, I always believed he was uh, destined for higher political office in our our country at some point. I don't know what that was going to be, but. Um, he was certainly on his way there, and we would have all benefited from that. You know, I, I first met Mamit, um, it was way back. There was a um, a time in our city when um, the Sikh community was trying to build a, a Gurdwara house of worship up in Martindale, and it, there was quite a quite a difficult battle over the, the, the approvals for that. And um, I was involved... Uh, as a friend of the community, assisting as a lawyer, and this young ten-year-old boy would be uh, tagging along beside his father and and myself, and that was Mamit. And so I've known him since he was a little boy, really. And um, he just had an incredible sense of calling towards public service. And then, as my own career progressed, he was. Uh, you know, essentially always there at my side back to my time in federal politics and in, in provincial. But um, this man's sense of uh, of justice and uh, compassion was just unequaled. <laughs> to be elected at uh, age 28 and very early on, I mean, he was he was entrusted with a lot, uh, took on a lot of responsibility. Uh, as both a young MLA and, and a rookie MLA, and, and and really seemed able to handle it, was was more than capable of, of taking on those responsibilities, and obviously that that grew and grew. I mean, I, I suppose it speaks to um, not just his willingness to make a difference, his eagerness to make a difference, but his ability to make a difference. Sure, and, and you fellows knew him, and uh, many of your listeners uh, did as well. I mean, he's a giant of a man physically with a big beard and uh, enormous smile and he could lift and, and carry um, any room that he went into you know I think a, a couple of his caucus colleagues have sent out um, notes just you know confirming that he was he was the heart and soul of the, the pillar of strength in the in um, the conservative caucus and in any any room that, that he was in but you know he took on really some of the most difficult jobs, whether it was human services and some of the difficult challenges surrounding the, the death of children in our province or laterally trying to deliver on the construction of schools. He he was always uh, able and willing to shoulder the, really the most the most difficult jobs. But it was always in terms of this this desire to to serve and um you know, in fact, that's of course how he passed away. I mean, he was not only on his way to Edmonton to the legislature; he had, had in fact stopped to help uh, someone else who had been in a car accident. Um, and you know, it's it's instructive. Um, I sat down with Mummy quite recently, and um, again, in the spirit of of service, he you know, reiterated to me that that was what his life was about. And, and he was, in fact, um, not only fulfilling his his obligations here provincially, but he was engaged in a, um, some very hard work as a leader trying to bring um, refugees from Afghanistan, members of the Sikh community, to, to our country. And uh, he was literally uh, crisscrossing the world, meeting with 
foreign governments and, and others to try to help get these people out of Afghanistan and felt that that was something that he was called to do. Um, Jim, I know you didn't get to spend uh, a, a very long time in caucus with Manmeet, um, but I do know that uh, that his uh, his colleagues, his peers on either side, uh, you know, uh, would suggest that Manmeet was one who could really reach across party lines and and speak quite sensibly and sensitively to uh, to various issues. So, for those of us who see politics as a, as a game, as a tug of war. Uh, can you give us some insight into behind the scenes how Manmeet became known to be one who could smooth ruffled feathers? Uh, certainly, and he and he he was not a partisan person in in that sense. And um, you know, I spoke last night to both Premier Notley and and uh, Rick McIver and many others, and and everyone is sort of equally devastated by uh, by this. You know, Manmeet was in public life for all of the right reasons. He, he was there to, out of a, really a great sense of social justice and a, a desire to do the right thing and to help people and to help the poorest of people wherever possible. And so that that really transcended any political boundaries. And, and so people respected him on that account. And, and you know, I, um, I mean, he cast quite a shadow in Alberta politics in a positive way because of that i mean you you could not go to a single community event in this you know anywhere in the province where people did not know of money Bueller and where people didn't love him and respect him and and admire him and of course to the the community of um um of, of new canadians um uh, he was just loved and admired and respected and looked up to in a in a way that's really hard to to even explain well, the uh, session of the legislature today was was cancelled. Uh, flags are, are flying at half staff, and I know once the legislature resumes sitting tomorrow, it will be uh, uh, full of tributes uh, to, to to Mamit Bueller. But uh, Jim, can you tell us any more? Do you know any more at this point about um, what, what's planned for uh, a memorial? I, I don't at, at at this point. I was um, with. Um uh, Mamit's family uh, until midnight last night. Of course, everyone's devastated and heartbroken. Um, I do know the premier has reached out and um, has spoken with the family. I'm, I'm not sure what what will transpire from here. But, um, I know that he will um, know that he's surrounded by a lot of love. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Um, Jim, we just want to uh, listen. It's a very, very difficult day, and uh, uh, we certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to come on the radio with us to remember Manmeet. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, sir. That is uh, Jim Prentice, uh, the 16th Premier of Alberta, and a very close personal friend with uh, Manmeet Buhler, who was killed tragically in a car accident on the QE2 highway yesterday. Well, again, and uh, Jim Prentice's relationship with uh, Mammy Bula goes back to even before uh, Mammy became uh, an MLA. Uh, so they've known each other for some time. And um, as, as Jim Prentice said, he was with the family last night as they struggled to take in this information uh, just out of the blue, right? And, you know, it's something that I, I think you know, we take for granted, maybe even the, the politicians themselves take for granted. He was uh, he had been speaking at the University of Calgary at uh, an event yesterday and then had to drive up to Edmonton to, to be there for when the legislature was to have sat today. And 
that's what they do on a regular basis. It's constantly back and forth from, from Edmonton to Calgary, and, and that includes um, snowy days and wintry days and days when most people would just as soon not be on the road. And, you know... It, it's the job, though, right? It's in the back of your head, uh, you know, when, when road conditions get like that, and you'd rather not be on the highway, but you still don't, don't think that something like this is, is going to happen. And you know, for someone still so young, it's hard to believe he was only 35 years old. It seemed like he'd been in politics for a long time and had been given a lot of responsibility as, as a government MLA, taking on different cabinet portfolios. Remember, he was handed the, the human services portfolio. Right at the time when all those stories were, were coming out about uh, kids in care and kids who died in care, and um, that, that was a lot to take on. I mean, it showed that, that the premier had a lot of faith in, in this individual, that, that something that important would be, uh, would be handed off to him. And, and he took it on. And, you know, I mean, it's, it, it speaks to, to the kind of person he was and uh, just the way that we're, we're seeing it from right across the aisle. Um, just the, the the grief and the and the tributes pouring in. I mean, it, it speaks to how how people thought of him. And you can put all the partisan stuff aside. You know, it's yeah. that party, that party. It was just someone who cared and wanted to make a difference. Yeah, that's something plainly every journalist in, this, in the uh, province saw as well. That uh, dealing with man meat was very different than dealing with some other politicians that we've come to know. He's just a man of uh, of outstanding character, um, of unimpugnable integrity, and. Uh, his loss is, is enormous. We're going to take a pause right now and continue after this. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Now, some interesting changes in Alberta. You might say maybe Alberta's become a little less prudish. We've got some new rules in place from the, a, uh, the AGLC regarding what's considered nude and what nude dancers can do. Uh, there were rules in place about topless performers that they couldn't be within one meter of somebody else and some weird rules about what was considered nude, uh, wearing the so-called pasties was still considered nude. So it was meant, I guess, to, to try to regulate exotic dancing, what would be known as strippers, but it also meant that burlesque performers really couldn't do their thing. Let's uh, explore what that thing is a little bit with Raven Virginia, who joins us. Uh, you may have seen Raven performing around town in the Garter Girls Burlesque Troupe. Raven, thank you for your time today. You're welcome. Hi. So we're curious about this law because I think that uh, the news that it's changed is uh, an introduction uh, of this law to a lot of people. So <laughs> what, what was the law before and what is the law now? Uh, the law defined nudity um, as revealing of the breasts, uh, whether covered with uh, a, a tape or adhesive, uh, as well as revealing, you know, your lower parts as well. Um, but uh, but when we were wearing pasties, even though it was a level of coverage, the AGLC that it wasn't deemed enough coverage. So we were we were uh, defined as nude, and it and it's and an important uh, aspect of that rule was that it was specifically for women. So if their toplessness was was more of a concern than male toplessness. Okay, so Rob and I, for example, we could do a topless review at a club in Calgary to a sold-out crowd of adoring fans, obviously, uh, but the, but a, a woman couldn't do the same thing. Yeah, exactly, and I think a lot of people um, automatically assume, oh, well, that's normal, except that in a context uh, that includes sexuality, um, male toplessness and female toplessness are quite similar. 
All right. So what what has this meant to you in practice then? Because as I was reading, I mean, you've been involved in what are essentially raids, I guess, where police are, are shutting down these shows. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the shows weren't, there was a threat of the shows being shut down. They still were able to go forward, and and I think um, raid might might be a bit of an overstatement, and I think, uh, and the AGLC would probably agree. Now, because when they uh, issue, uh, when they've been issued a complaint and they follow up with an officer, two police officers, and and a fire marshal, that is standard practice for them. But for us, on the other end, where we think we're obeying rules and then we get that kind of uh, presence at a show, it's very nerve-wracking <laughs> and it's, it, it makes us really concerned. Um, and that, you know, that came about after we were pushing back through the media and then they were pushing back with that kind of presence. And mm-hmm. so there wasn't a dialogue happening between us and it made everybody very aggressive on both sides. And I think after a dialogue was finally opened a couple years ago, we saw that we had a lot of common ground. Okay. Um, so I'm just trying to figure out how, how you've gained immensely from this then, because as I understand it, burlesque is not uh, a topless enterprise, so to speak, or a, mm-hmm. a topless art form, but I guess you do want to take it to the degree where it's just the adhesive covering and not necessarily a full bra, right? Yeah, exactly. So we want to be able to use the pasties and then we, you know, we don't, we, we don't want to, to have to wear the bras, right? So the idea here isn't necessarily that the pasties are going to come off. The idea is that we wanted the toplessness to be equal across the board because it was a human rights violation. And we also didn't want to be penalized to say a pasty pops by accident. Mm-hmm. We don't want to suddenly be subjected to a $10,000 fine or, you know, what, whatever the cost would have been. What, what's significant about the pasty for, for, for burlesque? Well, the, you know, the pasty as well as the G-string are supposed to be kind of a play on, on, uh, the, the way that nudity is regarded, right? So it's supposed to be like the fig leaf. So, um, the idea is that it's supposed to be funny. And if we are forced to do away with those and put on more clothing, then it sort of takes away the humor of it. Plus, the pasty is like a hundred-year-old invention. Yeah. It was created as a as a response to nudity laws like a hundred years ago. So to be subjected to those same laws a hundred years later is really uh, it was a bit, you know, outdated. Right. Uh- I don't know, but one, one would might argue that burlesque is also outdated, though, because we do live in a society where nude entertainment is allowed. Yeah, and I think the idea behind the movement, you know, the movement is all, the neo-burlesque movement is only 20 years old. It's a revival movement. Sure. So it, it's it's still new and fresh, and it's still finding its voice and its vocabulary. Um, but the point of the revival was that, you know, we wanted to defy what show business used to be for women. Um, so that includes uh, body positivity and body diversity, uh, gender diversity. It's a very LGBTQ positive and supportive. Um, and and so it's it's been a political movement in, in itself. So even though it may seem outdated, the the truth is the movement itself is is about changing attitudes about sexuality and women's bodies and ageism. And so if we're doing that, it does set itself apart from what burlesque used to be in the past. 
All right. Stand by if you can here, Raven. We're just going to take a quick break, and we'll come back, and uh, we'll continue this conversation and find out what it's meant for burlesque performers to try to work around these rules. Uh, you get the sense that a lot of establishments were leery about hosting these shows because they didn't know if they were going to run afoul of the AGLC and and, and have some kind of uh, crackdown as a response. Raven Virginia is one of the members of the Garter Girls burlesque troupe. We're talking to Raven Virginia from the Garter Girls about uh, this new law that kind of redefines what is is uh, nude entertainment, topless entertainment, is no longer nude entertainment. Now, Raven, there's a couple of uh, consequences uh, for the whole industry here from this law, but my first question is, do you think that this is the best solution, or do you think that uh, maybe they could have tailor-made a law that allows for burlesque performances to uh, to be performed in a certain way? I think that often when the laws become, when they try to get more restrictive, in the end they sort of back themselves into a corner. And then it becomes about picking apart each of those words. When they are a bit more relaxed, it allows, well, one, I mean, the way that they've relaxed the rules has acknowledged equality between both genders, and that's really important. So in terms of consequences, I think that they will be extremely minimal, if any, now that the rules are changed. And before, everybody was subjected to more consequences, the AGLC included. What, what was the, as, as you understood it, what was the justification for these rules before? You know, about 20 years ago, I think that there was a backlash based on morality. So over the, the last 20 years, we've had a cultural and ideological shift in, in how we regard uh, women's rights and women's bodies. Now we're having all sorts of conversations about consent and rape culture as well as um, slut shaming. So we're, we're really opening up that dialogue about choice. So instead of condemning sex workers, strippers, burlesque performers, or women who, who, um, who take charge over their own lives and make choices about being sexual or not, um, we're now acknowledging that they have those rights and that they should be, that that choice should be provided. So I think it, it was based on a moral issue before and then it became about, it, it, it sort of hid itself, the, the rules sort of hid themselves behind the safety issue, but the truth is, the less contact a performer has with their audience, the less opportunity they have to be human, the less opportunity they have to be appreciated for their personality and their, their, their soul and who they are inside versus just their body, the more, uh, the more they are dehumanized and the less people can relate to them. And I think that actually opens itself up to more violence and disrespect. Okay, yeah. Because if someone was considered to be nude, the rule was that person could not be within one meter of another person, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, um, that all sounds like, oh, well, doesn't that just make sense? Don't, do you want to be touched when you're, when you're semi-nude? And the truth is, yeah, when it comes to certain parts of my performance, I don't want to be touched. But, you know, I have a clown act where I, you know, <laughs> I, uh, I snot rocket clown noses out of my own nose and then I hand them to the audience. Okay. And that oh, is 
funny and it's supposed to be funny and I want to be able to hand it to them instead of having to throw it at them, you know. That's just an example of something funny and stupid that I wasn't really allowed to do. Well, let's talk about like the real and very commonplace behavior that seems to be something that should not be encouraged at all, which is actually throwing money at women after Mm -hmm. a a new show. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is because the law prevents that woman from going around the room, passing the hat, so to speak, and collecting money in a way that seems more like a a proper transaction. Exactly. Did you like my show? Will you tip me? Thank you very much. Instead, it devolves into throwing dollar coins at at women, which is not a behavior that should be reinforced. Yeah, I mean, and, and I have friends who are exotic dancers who have said, you know, when I have the opportunity to shake someone's hand and make eye contact with them and we can discuss our transaction, because that's what stripping is. It is a business. It is a valid business. And those women work extremely hard at their jobs. And and uh, when you diminish their opportunity to make money to throwing it only, you know, it doesn't give them, it really, it, it really doesn't give them the opportunity to connect with a customer the same way, you know, a salesperson wants to connect with someone when they're selling a vacuum. Do, would you want them to be a meter apart from you at all times? <laughs> Don't you want to shake their hand and, and, and get personal with them? Of course, because that's how we, that's how we sell things. We appeal to the, to that person's individuality. So, um, so I think that this is also a win for exotic performers too. They they still have to to abide by a series of city bylaws that are in place, but but I think there's also this this misconception that we're all sort of crazy and lewd and we're all just we're all just out there to act nuts and, and right. get in trouble, and that's just not the case. We're so, professionals. So that one meter barrier that's now removed for all uh, all uh, nude performers and semi nude performers. It means that the definition of nude does not apply um, once a woman is topless. Okay. So it's once, once below the her, waist. Yeah. Once once knickers are removed, then they're nude, and then and then all of those all of those regulations apply. Okay. Now now the change here that stands out to me is that. You know, I, I go to uh, a, a regular wing night with some buddies of mine at a local pub. That place mm-hmm. can now, instead of having a cover band on Friday, can have a, a topless dancer on Friday. Yeah, but I think, you know, I think we also have to give a lot of business owners who run wing nights and pubs more credit than I think people assume that we should because most business owners know their clients. Are they going to put a topless dancer in on Fridays if it's going to alienate a bunch of people, or are they going to do it because they've they've surveyed everyone and they seem okay with that? Um, and also, this isn't something that's going to be subjected to minors or people on the street. You know, like pop-up performances are not going to be a big concern here. And I think, you know, it's probably important to mention that the AGLC likely assessed that risk and realized the risk was extremely low or non-existent. Right, so going forward, though, for those those bars that would be inclined to host these kinds of shows but were nervous before, I mean, do you think this is going to be easier uh, to to book shows now for you guys? I hope so. I hope I hope that uh, that venue owners aren't as hesitant because there is more relaxed laws around it, and and I hope that they respect that we are you know professional companies who come at this with uh, with training uh, under our belts as well as years of experience and and traveling and international exposure and and now we don't have to shed such a negative light on our own community we can go hey you know what we have a great community here and and maybe we'll maybe we'll see more support i hope i hope that is the 
the aftermath of this. Uh, do you uh, do you foresee the? I mean, is is it an underserved burlesque market in in Calgary right now? Yeah, I think that um, that burlesque has has exploded in popularity globally. Um, and I think here there's sort of been this this interest that's been sparked, and yet some people don't really know what it is. They're like, oh, isn't it just dancing with chairs and 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 men's and men's shirts and fedoras? And it's like, well, it it can be, but it also can be so much more. So um, I think in the end, Calgary would do really well from having a stronger entertainment uh, industry for nightlife. Um, instead of instead of it being sort of self-produced, I think that that introducing that sort of that kind of performance into into regular nightlife activities would be really really fun. All right. Well, uh, people can find out more at thegartergirls.com. Raven, uh, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Yes, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, Raven, Virginia, one of the members of the Garter Girls. Something else worth noting, Roger, you mentioned, I mean, if a bar then wants to host this kind of show, they can, but they still wouldn't be allowed to have topless staff. That's actually still forbidden. Yeah. I I think that there are many... uh, Many bars, though, that might look at this and say, hey, you know, economic downturn, whatnot, maybe it's not a bad idea for us to try this. And, and, and let's face the reality here, okay? There's a difference between booking a band, you know, three, four, five guys, and booking one dancer, which might be more cost effective and you're still providing entertainment and getting people through the door. So I hear what, uh, I hear what Raven says, but I think that there might be some, uh, some bars that know their clientele and think that there's uh, a new clientele outside. Uh, I guess, you know, whatever floats your boat.